Welcome back to the Evidence for Faith podcast with Michael Lane. If you're enjoying our content and would like to help us keep making more episodes on this podcast, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And while you're on the website, make sure to check out some of the other things we got going on, like our specialty programs. We've got one in marine biology, which is an entire marine biology course down in the Florida Keys. And it's great for students ages 14 and up. We also have our biblical archaeology tour in Israel with archaeologist Dr. Stephen Notley. That's coming up very, very soon. So make sure to check those out. And we also have our bookings calendar open. So if you're looking for a speaker to come speak at your event, church, group, school, whatever it may be, make sure to get in your request in right away. And finally, if you have enjoyed a particular series on this podcast or you want to go back and look at a particular episode, our courses page has every single series we've ever done on the podcast nicely organized in its own course page. And sometimes there's a few extra little downloads and things you can use if you want to go back and study a particular series or share it with a friend or a family. All these links are going to be down in the description if you want to refer back to them after you're done listening to today's episode. And with that, thanks for being here and I'll let Michael take it away. Hi, and thanks for joining me at Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane, and I'm so glad you're joining us as we're going through this series. And actually, we're finishing this series um, that we're doing on basics of apologetics with this one today. This is, how do I answer critics? You know, what do you do when you're talking with someone and you just come up with, uh, someone comes up to you and says something that really is not found in the Bible? And how do you approach that? And how do you find out if the Bible is accurate? I get asked this frequently, and that's why I wanted to make sure that this is put into our series, because this is a question that comes up frequently. So I'm not trying to attack anybody here today. I'm just trying to show you a little bit of what I do when I come up to situations with skeptics and critics, or if people, not just skeptics and critics, when people, even Christians, will sometimes question something in the Bible. This is how I I look at uh, answering their questions. And like I said, this is frequently just even with Christian believers themselves. They're puzzled by something that they believe. And I want to just explain how I go about answering these kind of questions. So how do I answer critics? That's what we're going to be talking about in this lesson. So thanks for joining me on this. And let's just begin with prayer and we'll get started on it. Father God, I thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the health you've given us. And Lord, I just pray right now for those who are listening that you will use this, this lesson that you put upon my heart to express them and, and with the, what scriptures you have given me to explain this, that Lord, this will be very clear to those and it teaches us all something as we go through this. And we ask this for your glory, for your honor, In Jesus' name, amen. While I was speaking on tour in Boston, after my session on accuracy of scriptures, I was approached by a dozen of students and and adults. Some wanted to see up close the artifacts that I brought or ask questions about them. Others sought a deeper explanation of a point I made. Still, some others came up to ask questions about supposed errors in the Bible that they said I overlooked. Now, one of these people, I want to focus on him for a moment. Uh, He was a very highly educated man who was working, he told me, on his doctorate in physics. 
at one of the local universities in the city. He was very polite, and he politely approached me about what he said was a math problem that he found in the Bible. He read from a Bible about King Solomon constructing the bronze laver in the temple, which is recorded in the book of 2 Kings. This is where he cited it. And here is what he read. Um, it was 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 23, he pointed out to me with his, his Bible there. And it reads, Then Huram cast a giant round basin, 15 feet across from rim to rim, called the sea. It was seven and a half feet deep and about 45 feet in circumference. That's the verse, and he was reading it out of the New Living Translation. Now, if those of you who are puzzled by this verse, this is having to do with one of the artifacts that Solomon was making as he was building the temple, and it's the big bronze, the great bronze laver that the priests would use for washing, and he's describing it here. And now, this doctoral candidate, he's a very intelligent person, then he went on to state, after reciting this verse, or reading this verse to me out of his Bible, he stated that the dimensions in the Bible are slightly incorrect. Thus, he said, the Bible has a math error. He concluded by saying that the laws of geometry state that the circumference of a circle is determined by the equation C equals diameter, or D times pi, D times pi. Uh, that gives you the circumference. And C is, in this equation, um, this formula, C is the circumference, D is the diameter, and pi, he said, equals 3.14. He told me that the math described here is incorrect, and that the, uh, the, the circumference should be, as he said, 15 times pi. And taking out his phone and doing this uh, with a calculator mode, um, he says it should read 47.1238898 feet. Yet, he says, the Bible states that the circumference is 45 feet, not 47. So he said, here is an error. Now, just to let you know right away, I noted that the fellow was not trying to start a major debate I could tell from his body language and even the tone of his voice and stuff, he was, he was honestly simply looking for an answer. In other words, he was very open-minded. <clears throat> I had just got done speaking on the accuracy of the Bible, which he told me. He, he told me at the beginning, he said he immensely enjoyed this presentation. But he was nonetheless troubled by this scientific and mathematical error that he found in the Bible. There's the problem. So, using that as an example, what is a believer to do when faced with such an apparent error or errors in our Bible? How does one explain or even try to defend the premise that the Bible is true and accurate in face of such opponents? This lesson, this lesson is to help guide a believer in how to find answers for such moments as these. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a series of steps that I commonly use to explain such passages or apparent problems with Scripture, to find, in other words, the truth. 
So this is what I often use when and um, when people come up to me and they ask me about some passage or some. These are the steps I use. There's a few other ones that I am not including in this, but this is the simple, the simple easy steps to try and figure out um, when you come across when faced with someone who's saying you found an error. There's some passage in scripture that doesn't make any sense or seems to be contradictory, et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh, let me give you these, these series of steps. First, number one, always treat critics, skeptics, anybody who's coming before you like this, even if there are other Christians, you treat them with gentleness and you treat them with kindness. What you must not do is insult them. Now, sometimes these critics and skeptics are like in the case of this man, he was very open-minded. He was willing, he had a willing spirit to carefully examine what I was putting before him. I love that. That's how people should be. Um, even when I work in science and stuff, uh, I want to be open-minded on things. So I'm always very, very happy to listen to what they say. Um, and so, and, and they like to discuss uh, the thing, uh, the questions and the opinions and stuff. And so I, I like that. But not everybody's like this gentleman was. Others not like this at all. <laughs> Others, are, other type of critic, they understand what I'm saying, but they just strongly reject any common sense or logical conclusion. I've come across some like this also. This type of critic, these type of people are unteachable. They are, even though they might say they're open-minded, they are extremely closed-minded. Um, they're not searching for answers. There's the thing. If they're actually searching for answers, they're open-minded. If they're not, if they're just trying to make a point and drill you, then um, they're not searching for answers. Uh, they're just trying to cause an argument. In such situations, when these do happen, and they do at times do occur, it's sometimes best to just stop trying to convince such a person and agree to disagree and move on to another person or terminate the discussion. I sometimes offer to discuss this further if they will be open-minded and civil after I get done talking with others who are standing here. Um, or I've even said, here's my card, let's communicate um, on email or whatever, we can, we can do that. If, if they don't wanna do that, if they just can't, if they just wanna keep getting in your face, you, you just move on, you just move on, remember. The Pharisees and the experts in the law often disagreed with Jesus. Still, he loved them and offered them respect, but at times he did just move on. Sometimes they just walked away on their own. You see, gentleness and kindness are, are keys here. After all, the Holy Spirit gives us great advice to follow when we face such matters as these. Paul wrote, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. Now I'm going to read this out of the English Standard Version. But this is what he writes. Now, take what, we've, what I've just described you and listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling Paul to tell Timothy. Here's what it reads. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captive by him to do his will. So you see, what we read here is to give respect and kindness. Part of our job as Christians is to plant seeds in skeptics. And then what we do is we just pray that God's going to water that seed, perhaps with someone else, and it'll start to grow. That's the first thing. Kindness, gentleness, that's very important as you do this, and respect. The second, second factor, number two, when faced with an apparent contradiction of, uh, or error, someone's trying to point out in Holy Scriptures, I first ask for the passage that they're citing. I want to know, if they're just telling me something, I said, show me in the Bible where it's at. Now, this is important to locate the error to study it. I mean, even a doctor, when a patient comes in and says, well, I'm hurting, doesn't the doctor ask where? Um, so you want to know where they're having the problem. In this case, with this gentleman that I was talking about before, it was in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 23. So I had my phone with me, and I opened up my Bible on the phone to one of my Bible apps and read it to see if what he was, was reciting to me and reading from his phone, if it was exactly what is stated there. So always check, find the passage that they're dealing with. Just don't take here and say, well, the Bible says this. Okay, where does it say this? Or the Bible says, or God says you should do this. Show me where. That's the second step. You want to find out where specifically they're talking about. <clears throat> a third point I want to make. I always look to see what translation or paraphrase that they're using when they ask these questions. In, in this case, the person, as I mentioned, he was using a New Living Translation. Now, this is a good translation, but it's not a word-for-word or what we call a formal or a literal translation of the ancient manuscripts. It is a thought for thought, which was sometimes called a dynamic translation. What's this mean? Just simply it's this. It means that these types of translations are made to help make the overall passages of the Bible more understandable and also to be placed on a lower reading level than the formal types. The formal types um, of translations have a higher reading level, um, like a school reading level than in others. For instance, the New American Standard um, is written on a collegiate le uh, level, where NIV is written like on a sixth grade level. Um, there's a difference. New American Standard is a, a, a formal translation where the NIV is a dynamic. You see, the reason I make this point, and this is a key point, one of the main problems with dynamic translations like the New Living Translation or the NIV is that they have taken ancient passages and chopped them up, chopped up single paragraphs from the ancient manuscripts, forming numerous paragraphs where there was just one before, they make numerous ones. And they do this to try and get it more understandable, but also to put it on a lower reading level. That's the primary purpose of this. Now, why does it make a difference, you might be thinking? It's still the Word of God. Well, this is why. And listen carefully, because this is so important. Since the opening sentence of a paragraph is the topic or the thesis sentence, that means that each preceding sentence pertains directly to that first sentence. 
By chopping them up into numerous paragraphs, the translation loses the ability for one to see what the actual topic or thesis is. This can easily, and I've often seen this, leads to verses being taken out of context. What do I mean by that? Well, you're making the verse say something that's not what the meaning is. How do you know the meaning? You go back to what the thesis sentence is on the original manuscripts, or on the, on the manuscripts from a formal translation. You can see what the thesis is. Uh, for instance, I'm going to give an example. The NIV has taken some single paragraphs from the ancient manuscripts and chopped them in as many as eight or even more individual paragraphs. Now, that is not a good thing in apologetics, particularly when you're trying to defend uh, Scripture or if you're trying to search for truth of meaning of context of, of Scripture. Um, you lose the original thought. You lose the original purpose because you don't know now what the thesis sentence was. So it's very important to study Scripture by paragraphs, not by single sentences found inside of a paragraph. This is where I often have not problems with skeptics and unbelievers, but a lot of times it's Christians. Uh, sometimes they're young Christians, baby Christians, etc., even though they could be adults. They don't understand a passage. And they're saying, this verse seems to contradict, you know, what I've always thought. What is this verse? Are you just looking at the verse or are you looking at the thesis sentence also? So go back and see what this is. So it is so important when you do a Bible study, and I get asked many times, well, what, what is a good Bible translation to use? Well, uh, for doing a personal Bible study and studying Scripture and stuff. Well, like I say, in this case, this guy, this fellow, was using the NLT. And I reread the, that passage that he quoted to me, the first thing I did when he quote, uh, was reading it to me, and I told you that I checked it. I went to the New American Standard, and I used the 1977 edition. Um, I just prefer that one, so it's not as quite as politically correct. And I go to the New American Standard Bible, and then also, I'm not done there, I will also go to the Interlinear Bible. I have that on my phone, as well as in my office and on my computers and stuff, so that I can see that. Now, since this was an insulated question dealing with math, um, and the fellow was looking simply about a math problem. I really had no need to go back and try and find what's the original paragraph. What's it trying to describe? Because he's talking about a math problem in the Bible. But a lot of times what you need to do is get hold of a New American Standard or an interlinear and see where was the original, um, the oldest manuscripts that we have, where were the paragraphs? Um, where did they start? So you know what the thesis sentence is. And New American Standard is, is great for this because they bold print, if you have one, maybe you've never noticed, they bold print the number of the verse. Every now and then you'll see, if you open one up, just look at a New American Standard, every now and then you'll see the, the verse number is bold printed. That is their indication that this begins a new paragraph. That's how this works. So. In this case, though, didn't have to need, uh, had no need of knowing what the topic sentence was talking about because he's talking about a math problem uh, found in one, one verse. So this physicist is examining math alone. But I do want to emphasize the importance of knowing what the thesis statement or topic sentence of a paragraph is, particularly if you're relating to something that's doctrinal or a puzzling passage. This helps one not to take a verse out of context. The problem is that only a few translations have ref 
retained the original or the oldest like known paragraphs like in the oldest manuscripts and they are as i said now you have the interlinear you have the new american standard but there's a few other formal translations that are very good for um, for studying the Bible, and I highly recommend them. The English Standard Version, which if you've been following any of our lessons, I primarily use that one. Uh, even though it's a formal translation, it's written at a little bit easier reading level than the New American Standard. Uh, New King James Version is also a very good translation for this. And believe it or not, I still love King James. Um, I grew up as a kid when King James was uh, used in churches frequently, and I went to Awanas that used King James. And so I, I, today, to this day, I still have most of my scripture memorized out of King James, the um, authorized version. I highly recommend using those type of Bibles for Bible clarity and doing a Bible study. Now, some might say, well, I really like the NIV. Well, NIV is fine. Just remember, if you're going to look for context in, in verses and in, in passages and stuff, you're going to be handicapped because you don't know what the thesis sentence is on many of these things. Um, I use at times too. I, I frequently use an NIV, but alongside of it, I have New American Standard sitting right beside it. And I use more than one Bible, which I encourage you always use more than one Bible, but you can really get along well with New American Standard, English Standard, New King James, and a King James. Any of those are excellent. So moving on, fourth point I want to make. Fourth, there are, there are parallel scriptures sometimes found in passages that people will read. So in this case here, when he read this passage out of um, uh, Kings to me, 723, um, I wanted to see, is there another passage that contains the same information? So if so, when you come across this, is there a parallel passage containing the same information in another book or someplace else? Um, you want to open those up and read it. And sometimes you're going to find out that, oh, the answer you were looking for is found in the other other book or whatever. In this case, we're dealing with, though, it was very limited, very simple little problem here. He's dealing with the bronze labor. And there is a parallel passage, which is in 2 Chronicles. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 2, um, I read it. And I read it right in front of him, same thing, out of the New Living Translation. Then he cast a great round basin 15 feet across from rim to rim called the sea. It was seven and a half feet deep and about 45 feet in circumference. Basically, it's the same thing as we read in 2 Kings. And he said, see, it's found in two passages, so it can't be just a misprint. It's got to be an error in the Bible. Well, sometimes, like I say, this clears things up by looking at parallel passages. In this case, it did not. So we go to another point I want to give you. Like I say, sometimes that works uh, and we'll clear it up. Sometimes it doesn't. But let me give you the fifth point that you should know in answering critics. Number five. Examining to whom and to what purpose was the book written? The passage where they're taking it, find out, you know, what book is in the Bible is it from? Now, sometimes you'll find an answer to this by knowing what the, to whom that book was written um, or the purpose of the book. <clears throat> this can aid directly in overcoming some misconceptions that skeptics think they may find in the Bible. Some authors were using um, were used by the Holy Spirit, you understand, uh, when they wrote their books to address their letter uh, or their book directly to a, a person or a special group of people. Just knowing that can often clear up some problems. 
And what do I mean by that? If I've got you really confused now that how can this clear up misconceptions? Uh, let me give you an example um, of what I'm talking about here by um, looking at um, who and the purpose of the book. Many of the Bible errors that people come up to me about are found in the four Gospels. So let me just go there for a second. Do you know that Matthew's Gospel was written primarily to the Jews, showing how Jesus met the numerous prophecies concerning the King Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled that? That's what they're showing. Our Matthew was showing in his Gospel. Mark's Gospel was written to the Romans. And in it, he expresses some Jewish details, which might have confused the Romans. He explains them. Um, things that might be misunderstood by Gentiles <clears throat> concerning the servant Messiah. Luke's gospel was written particularly to Greeks. And it covers, gets into their philosophical thought. If you've studied philosophy, how the Greeks had different views. And one of their um, philosophical thoughts of how uh, the thoughts of God becoming a perfect human and uh, being a perfect human and a universal savior for all people. That's what Luke's concern was. As he um, puts his gospel together in John's gospel, the, the last one written, gives us the best portrait of Jesus being the eternal God and how to be saved. Now, did you notice that I never said the word biography? Because these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not biographies. There's where a lot of people make their error. They're not biographies. They're four portraits showing the Messiah uh, to different groups. So you got to understand that. And when you understand this, it makes the Gospels become more alive and more clear. If, if you want, you can go to a previous lesson that we have on our website where I talk about why there are four Gospels. Or if you're really into this, uh, my mentor and good friend, Dr. Dan Hayden, has um, a website called a, a, a wordfromtheword.org. And you can go there on his website and you can click into the area where it says products and you'll see a DVD set um, that's called The Four Portraits. And The Four Portraits of Christ, you can click on it, you can purchase that, it's very inexpensive. And it explains this so well. Um, but it, it's a great example of what I'm talking about here. And Dr. Um, Dan Hayden, he, he makes it extremely clear. He goes into great detail on this. And uh, I, I encourage you to get that. It's a great series, great thing to do in a small group or something like that. So know to whom the, uh, the book uh, was written. That's important. A sixth, a sixth um, uh answer that I can give you to help you with, with dealing with um, critics and stuff like this. Some misconceptions and supposed errors in the Bible can be cleared up simply by going back to see what the original language of the passage that they're reading actually states and examining what were the words or the word that was being used. Now, I might just confuse you on that. You see, um, those who have, have um, learned to speak more than one language, you probably will be able to understand this a little easier. It's difficult to translate certain words from one language into another, particularly into English. English is the most screwed up language. 
Since the Bible was originally written, you see, in ancient Hebrew and some parts in Chaldean, uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, translating from those languages into English is difficult. They're sometimes not a good word to describe them. And here is where a lot of people run into problems. They'll find a passage in the Bible, they think that they're finding an error. Well, if you go back to the original language and see what the actual word being used and what that word means, it usually clears up a lot of problems. This is probably one of the most important uh, parts you can do, one of the most important things you can always do in doing this. Now, um, I, I, go about checking, examining the original language. You might be saying, well, I don't speak Hebrew and Greek. Well, there's ways you can get around that, and I'll explain what they are. But let me give you a couple suggestions. One, you can check with your pastor. No doubt your pastor, chances are, he, he has studied the ancient languages and can help you find the direct word and meaning for the words you're searching for. He has ways, he's been trained probably to be able to do this. But there's a second way, if you don't want to go to your pastor, there's a second way you can do it uh, on your own um, with careful examination and studying on your own part, you can. And that's using something like an interlinear Bible which you can buy, they're not super expensive. And if you have an interlinear Bible, or you can download one on the website, I'll give you a second here, I'll tell you where you can find some of these things. Um, and using a Greek and Hebrew dictionary, you can often find the answers for some of this stuff. Today there are just, we live in an age where there is ample biblical tools and websites that can assist the layman in this endeavor. We are so blessed to have so many different tools available for us. And some are absolutely free. Biblehub.com is one I frequently use. Another one is BibleGateway.com. You can easily use these. You can download the apps for free to your phone. You can pull it up. I often, to be honest, I sit in, when I get a chance to go to church, when I'm not speaking someplace, I will many times open up my interlinear Bible on like BibleHub.com and sit as the pastor's reading and I'll read it out of um, the interlinear Bible, going back to the Hebrew or the Greek. I just have a, a tendency of doing that. Um, so this is a great way, that you and I encourage you to do this. You can download these things to your phone. I mean, you can go out and you can buy um, software too and, and buy downloadable programs and stuff. They get very expensive. But some of these are just really free and they're so easy to use. Another way to examine words and the meaning is getting a good exhaustive concordance like a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Because if you buy the exhaustive, don't get the abridged. Abridged means it doesn't cover all the words. Exhaustive, exhaustive means that it's covering all the words in the Bible. And um, if you get one, they're pretty good size. I mean, these things make a great doorstop. I mean, they're huge. But I encourage you not to use it as a doorstop. Use this thing because it has every single word and every single um, placement that word is found in the Bible. Not only that, it will give you a code number, and the code, it's called the Strong's number, the code goes with the dictionaries in the back that you can look up the words. You don't have to be able to speak Hebrew or Greek. All you gotta be able to do is look up the numbers, and you can get a lot of information like that. A Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, I, I strongly recommend every family having one of these. You can usually get one for sale for under $40. Um, you want to get the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Um, that, that is what I highly recommend. 
Um, it might take you a little bit of time to learn how to do it. Uh, your pastor can show you very quickly in less than an hour easily how you use this thing. Um, they're very simple to use. I teach classes on this, um, and, and I've taught high school and college students how to use this. Matter of fact, to be honest, um, the last time I was doing this, and this has happened numerous times, as I was teaching in class, how do you use this? Before the class was over, many of the students had pulled out their phones and had gone to like Christian book distributors or some other bookstore online, and they bought a copy before the class was over when they saw, wow, this is so useful. When I was um, uh, youth director at a church here in the North Woods for the graduation present that we gave away for um, students that were graduating high school, this is the tool I gave them um, that I wanted them to have so that they could explore the words and see the meaning of the words and stuff like this. For two or three individuals who are wondering, how can knowing the word definition and what word it is, clear up a supposed Bible error? Let me give an example. It's one that I use frequently because it's the one that is brought up to me the most frequent. And I'll show you how you can do this. Um, it, it's really simple. Let me take the passage that is most often brought up when I'm speaking someplace as to having a science error. It's in the book of Leviticus chapter 11, verses 13 through 19. Now, I'm going to read this, first of all, out of the NIV. So, um, this is how it reads in the NIV. Um, Moses is being given a list of foods that are unclean, and he's writing it down. God is speaking to him and reads, These are the birds you are to regard as unclean and not eat because they are unclean. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, any kind of black kite, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the cormorant, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe, and the bat. Okay. Like I say, this is the most, the most common one I get hit with. Uh, skeptics, critics of the Bible, and even sometimes Christians come up to me and they say, um, you say that there's no science in his Bible? Well, here's the science error. It's a blatant science error. Um, and when they do this, skeptics in particular, they like to use this because then they say, see, the Bible cannot be the perfect word of God because a perfect God would not make such a mistake as what you see here. What's the mistake that they're citing? Notice in the NIV, and many other translations will have this in this list, the fourth word that appears. It says these are the birds. The fourth word is birds. Thus, we think we're reading a list of birds. Yet, when you reach the end of the list, you find the animal bat is included in the list. Now, as all students of biology are taught, a bird is an avian creature, while a bat is a mammal. At first glance, it appears to be a serious scientific error. Like I say, I, this is the one that's pointed out the most to me. So, when you get in a situation like this, this is where knowing what the original language is clears up the problem. Let me show you. Because if you go back and you look at the original language, you're going to find out that the Bible is very accurate here. Leviticus was written by Moses around 1450 B.C., and he writes this in Hebrew. So, the language is Hebrew. Now, the word in Hebrew here is the word of. Of means, in Hebrew, flying creatures. Flying creatures. It's not the word for bird. It's the word for flying creatures. Now, the mammal 
bat is indeed a flying creature. So what happened? It just so happened that the translators for many of our modern English Bibles, they translate the Hebrew word oaf for the English word bird. Because a bird is usually a flying animal, though not all birds fly. Penguins don't, um, ostriches don't, so it doesn't fit for everything. The Bible's actually being more accurate here, saying the flying creatures. Note that the problem is not in the Word of God, but in the transcription from Hebrew into English. So, this does not show uh, an error in the Bible. Actually, helps show that the Bible is very, very accurate. And there's one more. One more point I want to make to you on how to answer critics. One more way. When you're given an apparent error in a Bible and you're really puzzled by it and say you can't, you've used the other methods and you're not finding any help with this, here's what I suggest you do. Go check with an expert. Yep. I, I do this. I have some dear close friends who are Bible experts. As I mentioned before, Dr. Dan Hayden, I have called him up in the past um, and asked him about certain things, particularly with eschatology. Um, when I'm not understanding things, I go to him. And there have been some other times I've called him up and I've asked him, or I've gone to some other experts. Um, Dan is hard to get hold of sometimes because he lives in Florida and here I'm in northern Wisconsin. But I do have some friends and stuff that I check with, so I sometimes go. If it's a theological problem I can't resolve on my own, I go to my mentor or I go to another Bible expert. If it's a science error that I can't answer, I go to the experts, um, science experts, PhDs and stuff, um, to find help in this. And, well, how do you do that? Well, it's very simple. There's um, Creation Ministries International is one I frequently go to. You go to their website, you can click in your question, and it will give you um, answers written by PhDs. Answers in Genesis has the same thing. There's a search box. You can type in a question, uh, a scientific thing, uh, question about the Bible, and you will have people who are scientific experts uh, give you help with this. So I suggest employ experts when you need clarification and help. Also, another thing that I have, I have a, a very large library of books um, written by PhDs and experts, et cetera, et cetera, um, on um, supposed errors in the Bible that I frequently will go to, and I find my answers that way. So there is the seven steps on how you do this, on how do you answer a skeptic. But I want to, I want to give you one more thing here, just as I'm drawing this to a close. I hear sometimes Christians say this, and this is, this is bad. A Christian should never say, when they're confronted by a skeptic or something with a passage they don't, you know, they can't quite answer the skeptic on or whatever, uh, and they have no place to go. I've heard people say this, quote, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, unquote. That is something you never want to say to a skeptic or a critic. If you don't know the answer, research, use these methods I've suggested, find someone who's an expert or whatever for help. Never say that statement. Now, some will say, well, Michael, that's a statement of faith, and as Christians, we're supposed to have faith. True, we must have faith. But let me tell you right now, the Word of God stands up to criticism. 
When you utter a statement, when you're debating somebody or having a discussion with a skeptic or an unbeliever, and when you utter such a statement as, well, I, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, you might as well just say, I have really no valid reason, reason of believing what I believe, so I can't help you. I mean, your thinking and your way of uh, looking at that, path, uh, that phrase is that I'm just going to go by faith. That's not what the script, uh, skeptics and the critics do. They don't look at it that way. They see that you have no reason of believing and that they, you can't help them. Folks, this we ought not to do. As I say, Christians may see this as a statement of faith. Critics and skeptics don't. They see it as conceding defeat. By the way, Paul never said this. God said, I believe it, that settles it. Paul never said that. No, John never said that. Peter never said that. Luke never said that. Instead, they gave valid reasons to believe. Go to the Holy Spirit, pray. Use the suggestions I've given you here. Don't leave someone, I mean, you might have to say, I can't help you right now, but I'll get back to you. Uh, or please get back in touch with me. Let me try and find the answer. And I'll, I'll help you and stuff. But don't ever just yield the field by saying, well, God said, I believe it. That settles it. You just conceded defeat in their eyes. No. I wish more pastors would do sermons on Sunday morning on apologetics, which is what this is all about. Instead of just telling us over the same things, the armor of God, God is love, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and things like that. Yes, those are indeed important, no question about it. But where I think the church is really hurting a lot right now is that we're raising a generation of people who do not know what or why they believe what they believe. They definitely, in most cases, they cannot defend their position. Thus, they become overtaken by the world. Paul has something to say about that under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that we shouldn't be like that. In Colossians chapter 2, take a look here with me if you have your Bibles. In Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to be out of the English Standard here. Um, I want to read the latter part of verse 1 going through verse 4. For all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all are hidden, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Get this now. I say this, verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. See, this was going on in Paul's day. Look at the Mars Hill sermon that Paul gives. This was going on. This isn't something new. Some of the early church fathers were apologists. What they did, they spent most of their time um, defending Scripture. Or look, just skip down a few more verses to verse 8. I love this one. Look what it says here. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Did you catch this now? Captive by philosophy, empty deceit, According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is showing us. And Paul's writing this to a church. 
the Colossian church, Christians can be helped and taken captive in our thinking. We need not to do this. As Paul says earlier in that verse, we need to study the wisdom and knowledge that comes from Christ. We need the Holy Spirit to be able to teach us things. So, that's how you combat this. Now, I know some of you are wondering, well, what in the world happened with that physicist in the opening story that I gave you back in Boston? What happened? What transpired that night in conversation? Well, let me just close with telling you what happened. So after he presented the verse and I checked the verse, et cetera, et cetera, I asked the physicist to repeat what the math problem was using numbers given. I said, just give me the problem in numbers. And he replied that the circumference would be 15 times 3.14. Hmm, I said, that's not correct. He gave me a puzzled look and he repeated it. No, according to this verse, it's 15 feet in diameter and to find um, the circumference should be 15 times 3.14. I again shook my head and smiled and I said, that's not correct. I'll never forget how he looked at me so flabbergasted with that. I continued to inform him that he was making a generalization concerning pi. Remember, diameter times pi equals circumference? That he was making a generalization on pi himself. I told him, too, that the number for pi had not been invented yet. This is in 1450 B.C. that these um, that um, the the basin and stuff is, was being talked to or uh, being given on how big to make this, having to do with, you know, later on when they build the temple, how big to make this and stuff like this. This is in 1450 B.C. They were using a generalized number in 1450 B.C. for pi, and it was the number three. And not just for the Hebrews using it, the Babylonians used this, the Phoenicians used this, and other ancient cultures used this. I asked him then, I said, what if you were to substitute for pi the general number of three? How would that be? He says, well, three times 15 is 45. That fits the answer. And he, I said, so there you are. And he goes, well, wait, no, I, I agree that that would work, but he says the Bible still has an error in it because it's using a generalization then for pi. So you shouldn't use a generalization for pi. You have to use 3.14. I then told him, do you know you're making the exact same mistake that you're claiming the Bible's making? He looked at me again. What? I said, to be specific, in math, really, I said, with your background, you know this, Pi does not actually equal 3.14, does it? And he said, no, it doesn't. I said, what is the more accurate method of writing pi? And he said, 22 over 7. I agreed. I said, yeah, 22 over 7. The fraction 22 over 7 is the number for pi. When we say, when you said, in his case, he said uh, 3.14, I said, you're generalizing pi. So you're making the same thing. And I asked him, since he had his phone out, I said, "Take put it in calculator mode, which he did. And I asked him to divide 22 by 7, which he did. Now, his phone then displayed, and I said, can I see what it displays on it? And it was 3.1428, 
1-800-547-1428571. And he said, well, there, there's pi. And I said, now, as a physicist, is that really pi? He says, no, that's not even correct. Because he said, pi is an irrational number. I said, yeah, it's an infinite number with decimals. Your calculator can only go so far. Your, your phone here only goes to 15 digits. And I said, sometimes, if you remember, in math, they will use uh, pi as three, 355 over 113. But I said the 22 over 7 is the most, ac is, is the most used and the most accurate uh, that we have for that. Hence, I said, the error he was making in the Bible that you're making, I said, um, in math that the Bible makes, I said, you're making the exact same error. He gazed at his phone for a few minutes. Now, I'll never forget, he just beamed this huge smile towards me. And he said, thanks for clearing that up. He says 22 over 7, the number for pi. And I'm guilty. I was thinking it was 3.14. Uh, I made the same, the same error. Uh, and he went on to agree that because this was so old, before the ancient number of pi was actually determined, that they were using the ancient, the ancient cultures were using the integer 3 for pi. When you use the integer 3 for pi, it comes out as being scientifically accurate. It would be 45, not 47.12, whatever, et cetera, et cetera, when you use 3. And he says, I get it now. So he says, so this isn't a science error. I said, no, it's not. And I'll never forget, he was so, so happy and just smiling so big. And yeah, so there's, and by the way, just to let you know, this isn't the first time I ever heard this. Um, I've come across this about four or five other times where people have used this. Uh, and they've approached me about this. And um, yeah, I just point out when they say that pi equals 3.14, I said, no, it's 22 over 7. It's more accurate. Go back, look at the math. That's how it is. Well, I hope that this lesson has really been encouraging to you and helpful to you. That now you have some, some ammunition, if you will, that you can use to go back and, and when someone challenges you, or if you're doing a Bible study on your own, you come across something you don't quite understand, how do you find the answers? How do I go about finding what the truth here? Well, the point is this. The Bible is true. The Bible is true. And its original language and the original manuscripts that God would have given um, these people to write, it was absolutely true. So the problems that we see are sometimes going to be found, in this case, in in many cases like this, in translating it from Hebrew or Greek into English, but also sometimes even the math is so precise. We have to be careful um, with what the time frame was and how it was used and what they're saying. So I hope this has helped. And if you have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. And I hope you put these, these little seven ideas that I've given you to, uh, to heart and put them into practice and start using these as you study the Word of God. You're going to find out the Word of God is true. And it has so much science and so much history backing it up because it comes from a perfect God. And it's in His name that we've, we thank Him and we do thank you, O oh God, for what you have given us, the Word of God. What a tremendous gift. And we thank you. We praise you. So thanks for joining me. And again, if you uh, want to continue looking through our website for other, uh, other programs and stuff, we have more coming up in this next year we'll be doing. Please look up and see what we have coming up um, and what we have available right now. Download them. Everything is for free. Subscribe to our website, um, to our ministry. It's absolutely free. We do not charge anything. 
Um, we just count on people supporting us to get, the st uh, get this information out and the Word of God out. I will not charge people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because the gospel of Jesus Christ is free. Jesus paid the price for us, it's free. I am not gonna charge for this ministry. So we have people who have jumped on board with us and helped support us in this. If you feel the Holy Spirit leading you to do that, to help us out in some way, in prayer or in financial support so that we can make more things available, uh, we would greatly um, encourage you to do that and we'd be very, very thankful. So until we meet again, take care, may God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evans for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.